This is Africa Digest. It's 1700 hours Central African time. Hello and welcome to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. We're coming to you from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter bands for Southern Africa and 902 on the DSTV audio bouquet. My name is Spumela Lezondi. In studio with me is Joala Natulo. We also have Wissani Matebulo has your economic news. Figile Lingwadi has your sports. Let's take a look at the top stories on Africa Digest. New Tanzanian president confronted by a myriad of challenges as he begins his five-year term. A Goa treaty between South Africa and the U.S. is in jeopardy. In economics, MTN Group CEO falls on his swords following the scandal in Nigeria. And in sports, Kaiser Chiefs goalkeeper, the brilliant, brilliant Kuzwayo, called up to the Bafana Bafana squad. Let's get the news from Jola Netula first. Thank you, Spumelele. Good afternoon. At least two people have been killed and a policeman wounded in gun battles in Burundi's capital, Bujumbura, after security forces searched opposition strongholds for weapons. Burundi has suffered a dramatic rise in killings, arrests and detentions since President Pierre Nkurunziza launched a controversial bid to stand for a third term in April. The clashes came a sec- came on the second day of a huge security operation launched after a government weapons amnesty ended on Saturday night. Hundreds of police and soldiers have entered opposition districts searching for weapons. UN Security Council talks on Burundi's worsening violence were due to begin today. Soldiers patrolled the streets and residents surveyed damage to their homes and businesses in eastern Nigeria today. This after deadly violence linked to the appointment of the country's first female governor. At least seven people were killed and 15 others injured on Sunday in clashes between supporters of the ousted governor of Taraba State, Daria Sishaku, and Aisha Al-San in the town of Wukari. Al-San appealed against Ish- Ishaka's victory in governorship polls in April and on Saturday an election tribunal annulled his win. At least 17 supporters of the Zimbabwean opposition movement for democratic change were detained in Harare when police broke up an unsanctioned rally. The rally was due to be held in Harare south in the south area yesterday. According to spokesperson Obet Gutu, police only notified the MP for the district, Eric Murai, that it could not go ahead late on Saturday. Police allegedly dispersed the gathered crowds by using tear gas canisters. There are unconfirmed reports that MDC supporters fought back throwing stones and bricks at police. Under Zimbabwean law, groups have to notify the police of any public gatherings they intend to hold. Still in Zimbabwe, as hunger, talk, as hunger stalks many households, the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies has launched an emergency appeal that will support the National Red Cross Society to complement government food security efforts and allevi- alleviate human suffering. At least 16% of the country's estimated 13 million population face food insecurity. Vast areas of southern and western Zimbabwe suffered crop failures this year due to lack of rain. IFRC's disaster management delegate in Southern Africa, Naimi Heita. 
They are estimating that uh, about 1.4 million people in uh, Zimbabwe are in need of uh, food assistance or will be in need of food assistance by March next year. Like uh, all the other countries in Southern Africa, the country experienced uh, flooding in some parts of the country and uh, plus the long dry spell also affected the harvest of uh, many households. So I think these two factors, flooding combined with uh, long dry south, are really the major contributor to the food insecurity. And finally, the World Health Organization has announced that Sierra Leone is officially free of the Ebola virus now that 42 days have passed without any new infections. Saturday's announcement was eagerly anticipated in the West African nation that has lost nearly 4,000 people since March 2014. Meanwhile, the International Federation of the Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies is calling upon all West African countries affected by the epidemic to integrate trained responders into their community-based health care systems. Emergency Health Coordinator for, for the Ebola operation, John Fleming. It's been a long, a long battle of 18 months, so the epidemic was officially declared over on Saturday, much to the relief, obviously, of everybody in the country, because it has had a, a severe impact on the country, both in terms of people, obviously, who succumbed to the virus, also the uh, the survivors who will need continuing care and obviously everything else in regards to the economy and the whole fabric, social fabric of the country has been affected. I'll be back with headlines at half past five Central African time. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. Africa Digest. You're listening to Africa Digest. Seventeen oh six Central African time. Let's start in Tanzania, a country that just had elections recently. It's four days after a new president of Tanzania, Dr. John Magufuli, was sworn in to lead the United Republic of Tanzania, taking over from his predecessor, President Jakaki Kwete. Magufuli is assuming the office with high expectations from Tanzanians who are said to be challenged from various issues, including corruption, lack of employment, shortage of clean and safe water, and good education. Our correspondent in Dar es Salaam. Gabriel Zakaria reports on the journey ahead of a new president. It was pomp and pageantry last week as a new president of Tanzania, Dr. John Magufuli, took the oath of office. As the initiation ceremony progressed through the day, however, it would have been apt to imagine how the new president started to feel the weight of Tanzanians' hopes and expectations on his shoulders. And the road ahead is rough with a litany of challenges, from rampant corruption to poor social services delivery. Almost everything needs improvement. Starting with the corruption, Dr. Magufuli's first challenge is on putting the brakes on grand corruption and they make efforts to find justice by prosecuting culprits in past corruption scandals. Efforts to prevent future scandals might risk appearing superficial if he will not create the impression that he is correcting past injustices as far as mega-corruption is concerned. Dr. Benson Banner is a political analyst and a senior lecturer at the University of Dar es Salaam. 
Uh, corruption in Tanzania is a scourge, it's a cancer that is in our country. What's important is to join the president, uh, to give him support, uh, to ensure that we have the appropriate structures, appropriate legal framework in place, and working. Uh, corruption cannot be fought from, uh, uh, from one side, yeah, from the president only. Corruption is a cancer which requires the effort of all Tanzanians, uh, the media, the civil society organization, the government, the legal framework. We all need a campaign. Eh? It's a cancer that is eating our social fabric. It requires the effort of everybody. It cannot be fought by one institution. No, it requires a holistic approach rather than a piecemeal approach. As a president and chairman of CCM, the ruling party, Dr. Magufuli's other task will be to restrain corrupt elements within the ruling party without threatening its unity. Some Tanzanians have the high expectation from the current regime. If we want to be having a, a, a government which is clear, he should make to, he should choose the ministers, his cabinet should not contain people who are corrupt, who are self-centered, who are not um, giving priority to the policy of the government. So for, um, if we manage to choose the cabinet of that nature, then he will succeed what he wants because he, first, uh, he even said that he's going to make a, uh, to introduce a court of full, uh, co corrupt. I think in the long run, I don't expect it uh, in, in ail stages. In the long run, I expect him to bring some changes in the system of Tanzania because a lot of Tanzanians were complaining about the system of this country. They were saying a lot of uh, pub, uh, public... Uh, Employees, they are lazy, they are not working, they are not doing their jobs, and the corruption in the system. So I expect him to change some of those issues. Dr. Magufuli promised repeatedly during campaigns that he would overhaul the civil service so as to increase the efficiency. Poor services in hospitals, declining quality of education, and a miscarriage of justice in court of law could largely be attributed to poor pay, lack of moral and unfavorable working conditions. Dr. Bana again. They have the right president in the right position at the right time, and that is a credit to all Tanzanians. Now, uh, as a young country, the poor country, Tanzania faces a lot of challenges and a lot of competing priorities. I think the first challenge uh, for the president is to galvanize the nation. Uh, campaigns normally turn around the country in, uh, in ruins. Uh, somewhat. People have uh, divergent views. There have been exchange of bitter words, uh, people calling names. We will have to settle the electoral dust um, for the good of the country. But the most pressing issue at the moment is the state of the political affairs in Zanzibar. Talking about the constitution, Tanzanians want a new constitution that is based on people's views. Tanzanians want to see a constitution that can facilitate the creation of better independent institutions and which consolidate the functions of the three pillars of state. What has evaded the system's past administration is the translation of fairly high economic growth into reduced poverty and improved quality of life. 
This is the challenge Dr. Magufuli faces. Economists say one of the ways to do this is to attract that kind of investment that create jobs, trigger growth of other sectors and boost adoption of new technology and innovation. Reporting for Channel Africa from Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, this is Gabriel Zakaria. Human Rights Watch says the Ugandan government should ensure a level playing field free from abuse for all voters and candidates during the 2016 presidential election campaigns. This as presidential campaigns begin today for the election schedule for February 18. The organization says that this campaign period is a critical opportunity to avoid the repression, violence, police brutality and recriminations of past campaigns. More from Leslie Lefko, who is a senior researcher at Human Rights Watch. Well, we're concerned that we're going to see a repeat of some of the patterns we've seen in past campaigns. And, I mean, this includes, for example, uh, a lot of restrictions on the media, you know, and of course the media are a critical component of of the election, pre-election period and the ability of opposition parties and candidates to access the media is a a hugely important element of a level playing field. Um, So we've seen in the past uh, and and even in the last weeks leading up to the opening of of the campaign period today, we've seen, you know, worrying signs of the same kinds of repressive tactics that we've seen in the past. Mm. So not just restrictions on the media, but also uh, breaking up rallies, for example. Even in the past few weeks, there have been some, you know, sort of informal um, groups of of demonstrators and and, uh, supporters trying to to meet in various parts of Uganda. And these have been broken up sometimes quite brutally by Mm. police using tear gas. You know, so these are these are worrying signs, and we hope that the government changes tack and allows opposition parties, you know, to operate in in the way that they're entitled to do in the coming weeks and months. Now, Leslie, um, obviously, a lot that um you watching out for um during this time, and in your view, really, how should the government um ensure that there is that level playing field that we're looking for? Well, I think there's a you know there's a number of steps. I mean, obviously, with regard to the media uh, allowing the media, and particularly radio, mm. uh, to operate freely without uh, the kinds of restrictions we're seeing. I mean, for example, even already we've seen restrictions on call-in talk radio shows, which are mm. a very important way for you know ordinary Ugandan citizens to discuss political issues, to be able to voice their views, and these kind of restrictions we'd like to see. Uh, lifted. But also, of course, the police have a critical role Mm. to ensure that uh, opposition parties can campaign, can conduct rallies without interference uh, and securely without uh, attacks, whether from, uh, you know, ruling party supporters or in some cases from police themselves. Mm. Um, So, you know, I think there, there are a number of concerns. There's also one other thing I'd like to mention is we're very worried about a proliferation of what the government is calling crime preventers Mm -hmm. and these are uh, youth in many cases or people who who seem to be recruited and and they're being they they don't really have any formal mandate but there seems to be a link between the police 
and these so-called crime preventers, and and apparently a, a potentially a political link, since there seems to be linkages to the ruling party or ruling party's uh, officials in some cases. And this is a worrying thing that we're we're very concerned about. Mm. Now, when you look at um, uh, specifically, I mean, the issue of journalists operating during this time, and I know that as Human Rights Watch, you've already conducted a number of interviews with journalists, just to share some of those um, first-hand experiences um, that you um, have got from these journalists with us. Just briefly, um, Leslie? Well, I mean, we, we know that there's been some, you know, clear patterns of restrictions on the media over the last few years. But, I mean, for example, one of the the examples that uh, that we've seen just in the last few months, in July, a radio station in Uganda known as Baba FM mm. was switched off at the main transmitter while one of the opposition candidates, Bizije, was a guest on the program. And the timing of that shutoff of the program was, you know, a bit... Uh, a bit odd, shall we mm. say. Mm. Um, and the station's owned by a local member of parliament who's, who's from the ruling party. I mean, so these kinds of, of examples of, uh, you know, basically what seem to be unfair uh, behavior towards uh, members or, or, or representatives of opposition groups is something that we'd really like to see uh, reversed in, mm. in the next weeks and months. That was Leslie Levko, who is a senior researcher at Human Rights Watch, on the line from Amsterdam, talking to his economist. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. For Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach, reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa, Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's only official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. 1718 Central African Time. Remember that you can find us on Channel Africa 1. It's Channel Africa Numerical 1 on Twitter. If you want to write to us on email, we are on info at channelafrica.co.za. That is info at channelafrica.co.za. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Now, some people, some unemployed Cameroonians are using bees to transform the lives of many people. The initiative was started by Awanga Timote, a 42 graduated from university who 20 years ago had no job and decided to return to his village and uses bees nature to has provided in quantities to produce honey channel africa's mokikinzaka reports 
Awanga Timote, popularly known here at Matom as Papa Miel, translated from French as Papa Honey, moves colonies of honey bees from one of his 30 beehives to the other with his bare hands. He says he owns about 500,000 bees and believes each of them knows him. Donnez à vos abeilles l'habitude de les visiter. Elles finiront par vous reconnaître à travers l'odeur. Elles vous piqueront pas. He says people should make it a habit to visit bees regularly so that they will be able to know and communicate with the bees without the bees stinging them. He says the first time someone visits them, he should stand a few meters from the hive and repeat the exercise for several days and that thereafter they go closer to the hive and open it and the bees will know that the people are visiting them. Timothée left the University of Yaoundé 20 years ago after obtaining a bachelor's degree in geography. He spent two years in Cameroon's capital city Yaoundé looking for a job in vain and decided to return to his native Matom, 70 kilometers to the south of Yaoundé. He says he decided to make a living from bees as has provided his village in abundance. He says the first bee charm is the bee's wax that someone who wants to engage in the business should keep somewhere in the forest and the bees will be attracted. He says the second thing to do is to collect a few bees that wander about in nature and keep them in a hive. The bees will attract others. The 42-year-old now takes care of his wife and four children thanks to bee farming. He has also trained several hundred Cameroonians, including 30-year-old Diodoni Zanga, whose first day in Timothée's bee farms was the day I was visiting. Diodoni Zanga says he recently watched a TV report in which bees were being read in Cameroon to facilitate access to honey. He says he was made to understand that honey has a promising future because it is therapeutic and it can treat wounds. It's used by diabetic patients and many others. And so he decided to be trained to produce honey because they do not have it in sufficient quantities in Cameroon. The government of Cameroon has been using Awanga Timothée's bee farms as pilot centers for bee farming. Through his success story, Cameroon now considers honey as one of the non-timber forest products in poverty reduction and biodiversity conservation. The country's livestock minister, Dr. Tiger, says bee farming is being encouraged in all agriculture training centers in the country, not only for job creation and revenue generation, but also for conserving the environment. Ce centre forme des jeunes qui sont destinés à pouvoir pratiquer. He says the centers train youth not only to become bee farming professionals, but to be able to create jobs and eventually become big entrepreneurs who can train other jobless young Cameroonians to economically empower themselves. Cameroon's Ministry of Agriculture estimates bee business employs about 20,000 farmers and contributes at least 30% of their annual incomes. But constraints of hive construction difficulties 
lack of storage and processing equipment, bushfires make it more difficult for bees and honey to be transformed into money and wealth. It is not yet known how much honey the country produces because most of the honey is produced in small quantities and sold mostly in local markets. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzuka in Yaoundé. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kulitranjoe for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lilian Strobach reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe. This is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundé. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. 17.25 Central African Time right here on Africa Digest. Three leading South African tourism companies have joined the growing list of fair trade tourism approved operators entitled to market fair trade holidays. Sharon van Veig of Fair Trade Tourism says her organization is delighted to welcome newly approved operators on board and look forward to working with them to promote the fair trade and fair trade holiday brands. Well, it's significant in terms of the fact that we are actively building our association with approved tour operators who are, through their approval, are able to market fair trade holidays. Fair trade holidays are holiday packages which offer basic least 50% of their bed nights, which will be spent in fair trade tourism certified businesses. So from that perspective, it's an added bonus to the fair trade holiday brand because it offers tourists and travellers a way to choose holidays which are going to be giving back and dispersing benefits directly to communities and to all the clients who are involved in those holiday packages, thereby helping to build the fair trade tourism brand, helping to spread the benefits of tourism across the board. Looking at the Livingston Safari in particular, what do they offer in special when it comes to issues of fair trade in tourism? Well, what Livingston Safari is doing is operating in an ethical and sustainable fashion by choosing products that it works with and markets to put together holiday packages throughout Africa. And what that is doing is it's putting together packages, the products that it uses, it's operating in an ethical way because it's choosing products which it knows are sustainable, responsible tourism operators. So, for example, 
if you wanted to have a holiday in Madagascar or in Tanzania, then Livingston Safaris would be looking at choosing products as part of that holiday package, which are both ethical and sustainable, and ensuring that the principles of fair trade tourism are adhered to in, in everything that they are doing. They've been doing this for a long time since they started operating, so they're specialising and adapting their business model to take account of the rise in awareness of sustainable, responsible tourism from a, a tourist point of view. Tourists these days need to know that their valuable tourism spend, which often, you know, they work hard all year to save up money to go on holiday, and they want to know that that money is being spent wisely. Is it the same can be said about Southern Africa 360? Yes, yes. All of the operators that are approved have a similar sort of approach to ethics and sustainability in the products that they put their tourism packages together with. It's a concerted effort by tour operators to start supporting products which are doing the right thing and, and offering that mark of a good holiday. What's the criteria for them, including Jenny in style? Those are the three newest members, but we do have a wide range of tour operators. And you can see on our website, www.fairtrade.travel, we have a long list of tour operator partners, not just in South Africa, but internationally, who adhere to the principles of fair trade tourism and, and who are allowed to package fair trade tourism holidays. How do you check that uh, they adhere to those uh, principles? Well, obviously, we have to inspect the packages that are put together. They have a certain number of tourism packages which are marketed under the fair trade holiday brand, must have a minimum 50% bed nights spent in fair trade tourism certified or mutually recognized properties. Now, we have mutually recognized properties in Seychelles and in Tanzania, which adds to the spread of the fair trade holiday brand. There are certain criteria that have to be met. There has to be a principles, approval process. They have to conform to a code of conduct, and that is checked against checks and balances within fair trade tourism. So do they have some of the communities where they operate benefiting from their operations? Yeah, but I mean, bear in mind that a tour operator doesn't necessarily operate in the community. The products that the tour operator packages, they operate within the communities. So what the tour operators are endeavouring to do is to package holidays using certified or approved products, which are demonstrating a high level of commitment to communities, a respect for staff, environment, culture, etc., which are the principles of fair trade tourism. Sharon van Weg is with Fair Trade Tourism and she was talking to Wandi Lekalipa. It's time for news headlines here to Alana Tulo. Frank is Pumelele making headlines. At least two people have been killed and a policeman wounded in gun battles in Burundi's capital, Bujumbura, after security forces searched opposition strongholds for weapons. At least 17 supporters of the Zimbabwean opposition movement for democratic change were detained in Harare when police broke up an unsanctioned rally. And finally, the World Health Organization has announced that Sierra Leone is officially free of the Ebola virus now that 42 days have passed without any new infections. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo.
17.31 Central African Time. You're still listening to Africa Digest with Ms. Pamela Lezondi. I'm going to be with you until 1800 hours Central African Time. And you can find us on Twitter. We are on Channel Africa One. You can also send us emails, info at channelafrica.co.za. If you can't get hold of us, you can also find us on the DSTV audio bouquet. Uh, we are on Channel 902 over there. Now, South Africans have been left with more questions than answers following President Jacob Zuma's statement that he believes his party the African National Congress comes before the country. Zuma was speaking to delegates at the ANC elective conference in the province of KwaZulu-Natal over the weekend. Zuma has said the country needs a conscious organization which can take the people to their destination. This is not the first time that Zuma's comments have raised eyebrows. In 2008, he declared that the ANC would rule until Jesus comes back. To talk to us more on this, we're joined by a constitutional law expert from the University of South Africa, Professor Shadra Kuto. Professor Kuto, hello and welcome. Thank you very much, uh, and you are listeners too. All right. Professor, could you just tell us what the implications of President Jacob Zuma's statement are for the country? Well, I think the statement is baffling. Uh, it doesn't seem to be rational. And indeed, for a head of state, uh, of more than 50 million people um, and people who struggled for so long to have a head of state, the symbol of the nation, uh, saying that um, the ruling party uh, is above, in many ways, uh, above the uh, government and the state is something that is uh, as I've already indicated, baffling, but also very, very disturbing indeed. Mm. Um, I think that uh, we don't live in uh, a one-party state where the party is totally uh, infused with the government uh, or with the state. This is a multi-party democracy written very well in the Constitution. We are pursuing constitutional democracy. Anything which uh, does not conform to the Constitution, whether it is by the ruling party or even the president himself, will be null and void. And from that point of view, to indicate that the party is more or less about the Constitution, I think is something that... uh, he will regret, and it is going to do quite a bit of harm to his image as a leader, but also to the ruling party to some extent. But, uh, Professor Guto, what about the justification that um, President Jacob Zuma could have been within his rights as he was addressing African National Congress delegates? Um, That doesn't matter. He was addressing, he can be addressing anybody, even if you are in charge and you um, or in any organization and you say that that organization uh, should be considered to be above uh, the state, um, I I think it is something that is uh, uh, unimaginable, but it has already happened. So the question is what's going to be damage control to be able to deal with such occurrences, uh, because if we hear it, very often the ordinary member of the ANC um, would begin to think that the ANC is above the state. 
Mm. Um, uh, do you think that the ANC should react to um, the public criticism of the statement or they should basically ignore it? I don't think that they can all ignore it. The ANC has about a million members and not all of those will really take this lying down. They will express themselves. But the structures of the ANC may not do so as structures uh, for obvious internal political struggles that are going on at the moment. But I believe that it is something that responsible leaders within the ANC probably will begin to do a bit of damage control and try to clarify and say that Probably that's not what he meant, but he said it openly. Um, and I think leadership also requires what you choose uh, to say uh, to the public, because it's not just an ANC meeting. It was also something which uh, was shared by the public because it was covered in the media openly. Now we know that the president did say that the ANC comes before the country, but has the president ever um, acted in a manner that shows that he really believes that the African National Congress comes before South Africa? Well, I think um, it is a paradigm of thinking among leaders, some leaders who are in many ways giving power and believe, therefore, yes, as you mentioned in the introduction, we are All right, um, uh, Professor Guto, there's a... The sorry, Professor. ...until Jesus comes. Professor Kutu, I'm going to disturb you there a little because there's a, a bit of background noise which sounds a bit like the wind that you're starting to get right now. I'm going to ask you if, if maybe you can just uh, move a little bit or close the window a little bit um, before you then... I'll close the window All right. I'm traveling, yes. All right, Go thank ahead. you very much. Um, yes. I'm not driving, yeah. All right, okay. sure. Go ahead. Yeah, um, maybe if you can then go back to that question because um, the answer was not very clear. If you can tell us whether um, you feel that the president has ever acted in a manner that shows that he really believes that the ANC comes before the country. There are some leaders who, as I've already indicated, get busy with power. And from that point of view, I don't know whether that is really the problem we are facing here. Um, but be that as it may, as you mentioned in your introductory space, that before he had said that the ANC will rule until Jesus comes, um, whether Jesus comes ever at all, one doesn't know. But I think it is that kind of thinking that the ANC is there to rule forever, which is wrong in history for somebody who is in a party calling itself uh, leftist, which analyzes phenomena from historical and lexical materialism, know that changes occur. And we can see already the changes taking place where the ANC dominance in politics is uh, falling slowly, not fast, but slowly, and slowly, and uh, from that point of view, I believe that um, if he thinks that the ANC is above um, the country and above, you know, whatever the ANC does by implication 
is above the laws of the nation, which is founded on the constitution. It is disturbing. Uh, there are local governments, uh, government elections coming up pretty soon. Um, would you say that voters will take this into consideration when they're going out to vote and maybe decide on whether um, they believe the president and what he said or um, when, they, when they are making their mark? Well, I, I think it is up to the leadership within and particularly the elderly ones, but also the youth who are I think, being contained at the moment, they should have expressed themselves. And uh, one hopes that it will be a debate within the ANC on how does the party project itself, uh, even if it is a ruling party. And the idea that when you win elections, uh, as the ANC did, uh, with uh, something like 62% of those who voted, which is a small minority of the population of South Africa, you think that you you are therefore uh, chosen by all South Africans and or a large majority of the population. It is uh, something which is disturbing, to say the least. Mm. Um, well, wouldn't you say, though, that when the president makes statements like um, Jesus comes back or when he says that the ANC comes before the country, would you say that he is not within his rights? As you have said, that the ANC, when it comes to elections, does get over 60% um, of the votes each and every time. Well, I think I've already indicated that the people who vote are a small minority of the total population. Hey, even that the is the case, and Professor Kuto, but those that do vote... Out of that small number, it doesn't mean that your support is overwhelming in the population as a whole. I think people have to analyze that. But even though that's the case, um, is it not the people that then go out to vote that will really decide on leadership in the country as opposed to people who choose not to vote? That is correct. But mind you that there are also people who are not allowed to vote. That is uh, the children below the age of 18. And that already takes away about a third of the total population of the country. And then those who then go and register to vote and those who actually turn out to vote and those who vote for the winning party is even smaller and smaller. So I think we need to know how to analyze uh, electoral democracy. It is not perfect, but it is one which at the moment probably is the best uh, system of uh, people selecting their leaders. So I think uh, that should be put into the picture of any debate and not to have leaders being drunk with power, thinking that when they get um, a majority, then that majority is a majority in the population. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Professor Kuto, President Jacob Zuma will not be there in 2019. Um, do you think that those that are going to be there um, should then take control and try to do some sort of um, damage control in this regard because it really affects them? Well, I think that um, uh, let the people speak. Um, I can't speak on behalf of the leadership within the ANC. Let us wait and see what they, they say. 
at the same time, I'm not, I'm not a card-carrying member of the ANC. Let those who are card-carrying really say whether that is the kind of leadership and how they project the party and the country, because this is something that will have an impact well beyond the borders of South Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, would you say, though, that maybe South Africans are blowing this out of proportion? Well, um, I think that all these slowly add up, people are going to begin to analyze, um, is really South Africa providing leadership uh, on the continent or is among the leading countries on the continent in terms of promoting uh, constitutionalism, the rule of law, um, and uh, electoral democracy. So I think that will be analyzed. And as I already indicated, it is something that cannot be um, bottled in the... Uh, in South Africa, only for South Africans to discuss. The whole world is watching. The whole world is seeing what is happening. And they make their own opinion. And that is the responsibility of leadership is also to think what you say um, uh, will spread and cannot be hidden any longer. And I think that is where responsibility comes in on how we project things. There's no, nothing wrong by saying the ANC is a strong party, but the he said it and the anger with which he said it because he was attacking uh, the former uh, uh, president, Halema Motlante, Kanye, uh, and so on. And uh, it was also the tone and voice of anger. And uh, one hopes that... Um, we didn't uh, read too much into what he was saying, but it was an appropriate statement to make. All right. Thank you very much for joining us, Professor Shetrakuto. You are welcome. Professor Shetra Guto is a constitutional law expert at the University of South Africa and he was talking to us about President Jacob Zuma saying that the African National Congress, which is the ruling party in South Africa, comes before the country. We also do remember that President Jacob Zuma back in 2008 also said that the ANC would rule until Jesus comes back. It's time for Economic News. Here's Wissani Matebula. Good evening. The largest shareholder in MTN Group, the Public Investment Corporation, or the PIC, wants more people to take responsibility for the 5.2 billion US dollar fine imposed on the cell phone operator by Nigerian authorities. The fine was imposed for failing to cut off users with unregistered SIM cards. MTN CEO Sifisa Dabengwa announced his resignation earlier on today. PIC Chief Executive Daniel Machila says a lot more people need to take collective responsibility for the giant fine imposed on MTN Nigeria. Meanwhile, the Communications Workers Union has called for a thorough investigation into the whole matter. CWU's General Secretary, Obri Chabalala. 
we should have had accountability and transparency. The stakeholders like ourselves have not been taken to confidence with regards to the matter. And that leaves uh, even the investors, they're not so sure whether to go forward, so they'll live in anticipation. It even puts the employment of our workers at risk, because once the investors pull out in, in their numbers, it can bring that risk into play. The timing of his departure raised eyebrows. MTN has not been vocal to say what really happened in Nigeria. Clearly, there was no leadership or taking a full accountability to engage the Nigerian authorities if there was such an issue. And money sent home by Kenyans living abroad has increased almost 1% to $128.4 million US dollars in September compared to the same month last year. Known as remittances, the cash is a major source of foreign exchange for East Africa's biggest economy alongside tea, horticulture and tourism. Kenyans abroad typically send money to help uh, their families and to invest in projects like real estate. Meanwhile, Kenya's tea output has dropped 14% in nine months to September due to drought that hit the country at the beginning of the year. This according to data from the industry regulator. Kenya is the world's leading exporter of black tea and the commodity is a major foreign exchange earner for East Africa's biggest economy. Vusinkosi reports. Output of tea in the first nine months of 2015 fell to 271.5 million kilograms from 316 million kilograms in the same period last year. Kenya's tea exports also dropped. The differences in export and production figures usually arise from unsold tea held over from the previous year. Kenya experienced drought conditions early this year, which affected the output of tea while processing factories received fewer deliveries. Tea production in the East African nation is expected to improve over the final quarter of the year due to more rain in most key growing areas. And South Africa's competition tribunal has approved a measure between JSE-listed company Pioneer Foods and Future Life Health Products with conditions. Pioneer Foods will acquire a 50% shareholding in Future Life. One of the conditions is that uh, the joint venture is to be managed by Future Life founder and CEO Paul Saad. Another is that the merging parties must block any information flow from the joint venture to persons in the Pioneer Foods uh, business who deal with competing products. The parties are also required to ensure that investment in the pro-neutral brand is maintained at its current levels for a period of two years after the, me- the measure. And uh, your financial indicators now, the dollar trading at 14.14, South African rands at 10.47, Botswana Pula, and at 12.63 against the Zambian Guacha. It's also trading at 0.93 to the British pound and 0.66 against the euro. Looking now at commodities, gold at $1,091, platinum $923 a final, and the price of Brent crude oil is now at $47.60 per barrel. That's your economics news. It's time for sports news. In our sports update this hour, we 
Kicking off with football news, South Africa's senior men's team depart for Angola on Tuesday morning ahead of their FIFA 2018 World Cup qualifier against the hosts. The match takes place at the Umbaka Stadium in Benguela this Friday. The return leg is set for the Moses Mabida Stadium in Durban on the 17th of November. Speaking ahead of the team's departure, head coach Sheikh Mashaba says they are aware that it will not be a walk in the park against the Angolans. It's not going to be an easy game. It's not going to be an easy game. It's going to be tough. Both legs, it's going to be tough. And you remember when we beat them 2-1 when they left here, they were not a happy uh, lot. eh? (laughs) They were very angry. They didn't believe that we beat them. But with the team that we've got now, I think um, we're going to pull a surprise in this game. Bafana Bafana failed to qualify for the 2014 FIFA World Cup in Brazil. Midfielder Dean Furman says it will be important for the team not to repeat that, but rather qualify for Russia 2018. It's obviously a huge game for us. We know the importance of being at the World Cup. Uh, we're bitterly disappointed to not qualify for the last competition. Um, and we know that it's vitally important for us to make it into the group and to get out of this uh, difficult playoff game successfully. Um, but over the last Kind of a couple of months, our form has been terrific. Uh, some of the performance we put in, uh, I think, in the friendly games has, has been outstanding. There's a lot of competition for places. We'll all be working very hard uh, in training this week to try and impress the coach. And uh, the competition in the squad is healthy, so we're very much looking forward to the two games. And the South African men's under-23 national team will go into camp from the 9th to the 14th of November as part of their preparations for the Eight Nations Tournament scheduled to run from the 28th of November to the 13th of December 2015 in Senegal. Three top nations from the continent will qualify for the 2016 Rio Olympics. Coach Owen Begama, the head coach of South Africa's national under-23, has called up 24 players to participate in the local training camp and will play a practice match against Tanzanian men's senior national team on Tuesday afternoon at Eldorado Stadium, south of Johannesburg. As a result of the under-23 camp, Coach Dagama will not travel with the senior national team to Angola for the first leg of the World Cup qualifier against Angola on the 13th of, ben- uh, of November. In South Africa's national under-23 team, Sitsana failed to qualify for the 2016 FIFA World Cup to be held in Papua New Guinea after going down 1-0 to Nigeria at Makhulung Stadium east of Johannesburg on Sunday. Nigeria came into this game leading Sitsana 2-1 after beating them two weeks ago in Abuja, Nigeria. Veronica Chingwendu scored in the 16th minute to ensure that they take a 3-1 aggregate lead. Basisana coach Elizabeth McShellison says they are shattered about their failure to qualify for the tournament. Meanwhile, Nigeria coach Peter Dedevbo says it was not easy playing under hot conditions, but says it's now looking at guiding the under-20s into the first World Cup win ever next year in Papua New Guinea. And finally, with uh, athletics, an independent commission has recommended that no Russian athletes be allowed to compete in competitions, including the Olympics, until Russian athletics clean up its act. The commission was probing a massive cover-up of doping in Russia. Commission head Dick Pound says his team has found evidence of Russian state interference at the Moscow Anti-Doping Laboratory. Janet Witten has more. 
The commission found systematic failures with Russian athletics and the IAAF that allowed this ongoing cover-up of doping to continue. Some details haven't been released, particularly those where IAAF officials are named, so as not to interfere with ongoing criminal investigations. But Pound says they have evidence of cover-ups, the destruction of samples and illegal payments. There is a recommendation that five athletes, five coaches and a doctor are immediately banned from sport. Pound says he hopes the Russians will cooperate and comply because, as he put it, the scandal has the potential to destroy a sport. And that's your sport news this hour. This is Africa Digest. Let's talk about top stories at 17.55 Central African time. New Tanzanian president confronted by a myriad of challenges as he begins his five-year term. A Goa treaty between South Africa and the U.S. is in jeopardy. In economics, MTN Group CEO falls on his swords following the scandal in Nigeria. And in sports, Kaiser Chiefs goalkeeper Brilliant Kuzwayo called up to the Bafana Bafana squad. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. From myself, Spumela Lezondi, producer Luanda Maome, technical producer Revelino Ibrahim, and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you very much for listening. For comments, send us emails, info at channelafrica.co.za. Info at channelafrica.co.za. You can also find us on SMS. You can send your text to plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. That is plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. On Twitter, we are on Channel Africa One. It's Channel Africa Numerical One on Twitter. We leave you with Now or Never by Sankomot.